Thessalonians chapter 3. Tonight is the last night for our Wednesday night studies for 10 weeks. We're taking a break from Wednesday nights to really emphasize home fellowships and give people a chance to participate in those. So we're finishing up 2 Thessalonians tonight and then we'll take a break and and we get into June, then we'll start up again um, in our Wednesday night studies again during the summer. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul has already kind of wrapped up the letter for the most part of what he was wanting to share with them, and that was primarily about eschatology, straightening out some wrong ideas that they had um, because of some false teaching that was going around. And so in chapter 3, he starts out, finally, brethren, which is a shifting of gears and ready to close the book, but there were a couple things he just really needed to share with them about. And so he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Paul often requested prayer. He had a very high regard for not only prayer himself, but a high desire for others to pray for him. And anyone who's involved on the front lines of ministry has a a desperate need for people to pray for them. And this is true for all of us in whatever ways that we are ministering. We We should really crave people's prayer, but certainly... When we are in a position whereby we know that the enemy is going to be attacking us, where we know we're, we're dealing with principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this age and spiritual wickedness in high places, we certainly have to understand we need people to pray. And the people that you know who are involved in ministry, um, they're under attack almost constantly, and it's so important to pray for them. Even as David shared with you just a little bit about what happens there in the Ukraine on a daily basis. And it's so important that we hold people like him and our other missionaries and other people that we know who are serving God up in prayer. And so Paul just said, man, pray. But it's interesting, he didn't say, pray for us that we won't be persecuted Pray for us that we'll have enough money to do what we need to do. Pray for us that we'll have traveling mercies or things will go easy. You never see Paul praying for those kinds of things or requesting those kinds of prayers. In fact, when you study all the prayers that are in the Bible, both the prayers of Jesus and the Gospels and and then the prayers that we have in the book of Acts and the prayers that we have in all the epistles, and clear off into the book of Revelation, it's really shocking how different the prayers are in the Bible compared to the prayers that we tend to pray. The The thrust of most of our prayers is that everything will go well for what we're doing, that everything will be provided for, and that things will be successful, and that we will be happy and blessed, and all those sorts of things. But When you see biblical prayer, it's much deeper than that. And Paul seemed to almost not want to pray for those kinds of things or ask for prayer for it because there were so much more important issues that were involved. And as he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run. The word swiftly isn't in the original. The word just means to run or to really travel and be glorified just as it is with you. So it's that prayer that in the same way that God has ministered to you, pray that God would minister to others through those who are out there sharing the gospel, those who are teaching God's word, to hold them up in prayer so that God's word would be magnified, so that it would be taught, that it would be applied, that it would have its rightful place, that God would be glorified through his word as, he, uh, as, as the Bible says that God has magnified his word even above his name. It's so important. And so 
that's always the thrust of the most important prayers that we could pray, that God's word would get out, that it would be, not just that it would get out there, but that it would run, it would, it would take hold in our lives. It's not just about, and sometimes we get the idea that the important thing is that people learn as much as they can about the word of God. Um, as we get into the book of James starting this Sunday, as we're starting a new series in the book of James, and we'll be 10 weeks in the book of James, James has such a strong emphasis on the importance of not just hearing the word, but doing the word. And, and being the kind of people that the word tells us to be. And, and that's how the word ultimately runs. You, you never, we could sit around in a holy huddle and talk about theology, and it really means nothing. Or we can say, you know, we're going we're gonna to be here all night and we're going to go through the entire Bible in one night. Be kind of fun. I mean, I'd, I'd be up for it. But <laughs> that's not what it's about. The idea is that God's Word would transform our lives. And it's amazing sometimes when people who, who listen to the Word, love the Word, know the Word, it doesn't actually work for them. It's not really running. It, it's kind of like somebody who has a, has a really amazing luxury car or a motorcycle. And it's a collector's item, and it's polished and beautiful, and it's just like, wow, this thing is unbelievable. It's so gorgeous. Even put it in a trailer and take it to shows, and it wins trophies. But if you go, can you start that thing up? You know, well, it doesn't actually run. It just, it's just beautiful, that's all. And I'm afraid sometimes that's what people's lives are like. It looks really good, and they have all of the little details nailed down, but when it comes down to it, the real test is, does it start? Does it run? Does it continue? Is it faithful? And those are the things that can only be proven over time. It's so often... People are great sprinters, but they aren't good distance runners. And the scripture would liken often the Christian race to like a marathon. And, and it said, run with endurance over in Hebrews, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that's what he's praying for here, that he said, pray for us that somehow we can communicate to people in a way that they don't just look good, but they actually run. They actually can go somewhere. They actually, it, it works in their lives. Their lives can bring glory to the Lord. And so he says, uh, with them just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Not all are faithful. Paul seemed like was let down by people a lot. You read his epistles, and this is a common theme for him. And you can tell that it hurts him because he's invested his entire life into doing what God has called him to do. And he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, he, he, he says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. He, he had a singular focus about him. But he also appreciated how important teamwork was and, and working with others. And so he was often disappointed when people proved to be less than faithful. And so he, he's praying that the gospel would work in people's lives. But he's also praying as a result of the fact that he says, you know what, <laughs> pray that we'll be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all are faithful. The idea of the race in verse 1 is being carried through in verse 2 and saying it doesn't work for everyone. Everyone won't take the gospel and run with it. Some people just quit. Some people just give up. Some people become distracted or, 
are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and things like that. And so he says, pray for me because I have people like that dragging me down. I have people like that trying to take away what God wants to do in my life. And this was a deep concern for Paul. And, and again, we see him talk about this enough. You, we look at Paul and go, man, Paul, I mean, he's the Apostle Paul. He wrote 14 books of the New Testament. He, he was amazing, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had all this, he was brilliant and all that kind of stuff. But the fact is, and could even be a result of his brilliance, sometimes he could be difficult to get along with. Barnabas, who took off with them originally, ended up having a fight with him, and they kind of split up, and, and Silas was with him for a long time after that, but other people would come and go, and Paul mentions the names of several people who um, you know, just couldn't hang with them and didn't do it, and every time how he said, they did me harm, they damaged me, and so he's being sensitive about that. This time he doesn't name names, he does in many of his other letters, but these guys here in Thessalonica probably wouldn't have known the people that he was ta- would have talked about anyway because um, Paul had only been there for a short time. But, he says, despite the fact that people aren't faithful, I love this, and this is so important for us to remember when people aren't faithful, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Don't worry, God's going to come through. And God is going to help you to be solid. God's going to help you to grow. He is going to support you. It's his job to get you from where you are to where you're going. And so he says, he'll protect you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Notice a subtle shifting of gears where he's saying, pray for us. Pray for the gospel to be spread. Pray for me to be protected from those who would let me down and, and, or turn against me. And then he goes, but God's going to take care of you, and God's going to establish you. And as they heard what he was saying, and as they were praying for him, it was a reminder that we're all in the same boat, that this is a struggle for all of us, that this can happen in, in any type of situation. And so he turns around, but he says, you know, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you do and will do what we command you. And then a beautiful end of the prayer there is, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. The threat from the evil one, Satan, when he attacks us, cannot take away our salvation. He can't ruin God's plan for our lives. He can't damage and destroy us by what he does because his basic attack is just lies. It's always the enemy attacks with lies. The truth isn't good enough because the truth is whatever it is that you've done wrong, Jesus died for it and it's supposed to be gone. So whenever you're under an assault, whenever you're feeling convinced that people are down on you, whenever people are attacking you, criticizing you or whatever, you know that's not God. God doesn't deal with people that way ever. And he says, don't worry, God's protecting you. But then, see, here's the danger, that we would leave and fall away from the love of God, that that we would just, through vicious attacks, that we would lose that love that's the fruit of the Spirit. And this is something, I don't care who you are, it's so important that you guard yourself in that area. You may have people who are in your life, at your work or wherever, that are just horrible to you, but don't let them define you. You may have someone in your family who is just mean and vicious. You may have a relative or someone else who's just out looking to do you harm. What they say and what they do against you 
cannot harm you anywhere close to how you can harm yourself if you give up on love, if you stop allowing the Spirit to flow through your life and to really fill you with God's love. And along with that, as he says, the patience of Christ. Well, how patient was Jesus? He was certainly attacked repeatedly and viciously and horribly. And Paul says in another place, I mean, none of us have even bled so far from the attacks we've been under. And so here he's saying, when you're under attack, remember the patience of Christ. Didn't utter a word as they just totally abused him. He took it and he prayed for forgiveness for his attackers. Um, The day will come when his attackers will face justice, no doubt about it. But look how long he waited to do that. The patience of Christ and how we need to make sure that as we react to whatever it is that faces us, that we take on his patience and his love. Why? Because the gospel is that important. And that comes back to what Paul was asking for prayer for. Anytime we become sidetracked from what God has called us to do, then the loser ultimately is the gospel. The loser ultimately is, the, is our witness. And people who are in a position to be affected by how we deal with what we're dealing with. And so he reminds us of God's love and of Jesus' patience in order to let them know, don't worry. You know, yeah, there are unfaithful people, there are vicious people, there are wicked people, but... God's going to protect you. He is faithful. So your job is to not let your attackers change you into something that you're not. And so often the temptation for all of us is to become like those who are attacking us. So the world has their political organizations and their dirty tricks, and so we need to get ours. You know, they have their lawyer, we need ours. They have their, you know... um, there, there's, I'm not knocking every instance whereby somebody feels like God's leading them to be an activist or something like that. I, our country wouldn't be here if somebody didn't stand up against um, the establishment. So we have a great history of that. But for us, our agenda should be the work of the Lord. And if anything that we do holds that back, then we've become sidetracked and we become pulled off. And the one who pulls us off of that is simply the enemy, Satan himself. That's what he wants to do. Again, he can't make God not love us, but if he can make us turn our focus on the enemy instead of on the gospel, then we lose. And the people we're supposed to minister to lose, and our, and our witness is blown. And so Paul sees this, takes it seriously, and asks that they would pray concerning this. Now in verse 6 he says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is pretty serious, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. The word for disorderly is a word that literally means somebody who's out of place. It's the word for order or organization and then the negative prefix um, before it. Um, He's certainly not just talking about people who are disorganized because as you go down here, the big example that he uses of it is a, a guy who's not working and expecting to be supported and taken care of. And he deals with that apparently, most likely, there were people there in Thessalonica who were saying, you know, Lord's going to come back any day now, so I don't need to work. I don't need to plan for the future. So that's definitely in view here, but also in view, and he uses this word in other places, as we've seen before, to refer to people who do not fall under authority, people who do not find their place and do their job. Later on, he 
talks about them as being those who don't who aren't busy but they're busy bodies they're and the word there means that they stick their nose into other people's business instead of taking care of their own the warning here is that and apparently some of those who were damaging paul that he was praying about these unfaithful people um, were those who for one reason or another their life was out of order they were they were not in submission as as he says here not according to the tradition that he received from us so they would listen to what paul had presented in terms of here's how the church should be structured and they would say no we don't want to do it that way they were the rebels they were the critics they were the ones who who didn't want to find their place and take their place and it, it's really sad when people don't have a sense of who they are really and so they're always trying to be something that they aren't they they may have an area of ministry where they're really effective but they would rather be doing other things and and so often people just don't appreciate the fact that hey god has put you in a place where right now you're doing what you're supposed to be doing so often people aren't happy with what they have because their eyes are on what they want that's more than that and i think that's kind of partly what he had in mind and he talks about that in other places too but the idea is as as paul talked about in ephesians we need to submit ourselves one to another there are certain order that's been devised within the church and that has even been developed there are positions of leadership that need to be respected as we've seen in other places where he says hey you respect that for the sake of the office for the sake of the job that someone's doing so you need to let people do what they're called to do and there were people there who were having a hard time with that and they were questioning whether paul had a right to tell them how to do church therefore then no doubt they had a problem with the men that paul put in charge of the church and it was a constant struggle for them and and typically the people who are the most critical are also the people who quite often do the least and some people think their spiritual gift is just tearing down what everyone else is doing and you know there were people like that certainly but he says withdraw from every brother they're not non-christians they're brothers but withdraw from those who walk disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us why for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us for we were not disorderly among you he said when when i came to to talk to you when i came to minister to you i had things in order i i had a sense of god's leading i was clear about what it is that i was called to do and what it is that you were called to do and here paul had taught them for just a few weeks and yet they had such a depth of understanding of his teaching but he was saying and my life was also um, an example to you of that i i didn't i wasn't out of control i wasn't you know somebody who was just flying by the seat of my pants he goes no i was somebody who you looked at my life and it was in order and in this case he's talking about the fact that rather than live off of them he worked to support himself so he must have worked long hours because he ministered long hours and then worked long hours on top of it as he goes on to say but you have my example he said we weren't disorderly among you nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you he says hey when i was there i didn't mooch off anybody you guys weren't supporting me so i worked he goes on to say that shouldn't have been but i was willing to do it and i had to do two jobs i was tent making and i was pastoring and he said there should be something that you learn from that because i was clear about what i was called to do and these other people are coming along who don't have my calling 
but they are questioning my calling. And he goes, you saw what I did. I was so devoted to what I was called to do that I did it both night and day. And, um, you know, you know it. We didn't take anything from anybody. I didn't want to be a burden to any of you. I wasn't asking for your help. And he says in verse 9, not because we do not have authority. He goes, I should have. You should have taken care of me. You should have helped me. Um, I have the authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. He said, I didn't take what, was, what I was entitled to because I wanted to set an example to you. And now people were criticizing Paul for the fact that he hadn't done that. But he said, I was just trying to show you what dedication is about. I was trying to show you what hard work is about. And so I worked day and night. I did whatever needed to be done, even though you guys should have been doing it. I did it to set an example for you. Now he says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And that's just a basic rule. He said, I told you that before, that there are no freeloaders, there are none who should be supported and they're not willing to, to work. Um, he's not saying that you, know, you have to pay everyone who does anything for the Lord. Of course, that's, that's not true. But what he's saying is, you need to tell everybody, you need to get your life in order. Your life needs to be decent. Your life needs to be normal. You're, you need to work hard, support yourself, make a contribution to society, do everything that you can. He said, I did that, and I was an apostle working full-time, writing letters and preaching sermons and planning churches and going on travels and being thrown in jail, and I still worked. And he goes, where do you, some of you guys, get off in thinking that you cannot work and somebody ought to support you? And so he said, I told you, no, it doesn't work that way. You don't work, you don't eat. Simple rule. And you go, but wait a minute, is that really fair? to pe-? Well, I don't know, you know how that applies specifically today necessarily because I know there are people who are unable to work and um, I don't think he was saying just let them die if they can't feed themselves. But certainly if we had the rule that if you don't work, you don't eat, there'd be a lot of people who would be working who aren't now. And certainly there are people that you can see who it's obvious that they're eating plenty. And if they're not working plenty, um, Paul would have an issue with that. It's not me, it's just Paul. And uh, so he says, we told you that before. 4, verse 11, we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner not working at all, but our busybodies. So he says, in having an ordered, structured life, in having your life together, in having it organized, if it's unbalanced and it's weird, he said, I hear that there are people there who aren't working at all. And what happens when they don't work at all? They're busybodies. They get into other people's business. They... They want to hear the latest gossip. They can't wait to talk about what they heard about this person or that person. They tell everyone else what they should be doing. They become highly critical. And see, what's wrong with that is that it started with an unorganized life. It started with a life that was out of control. And when your life is out of control, one of the first things that's going to go is work. Because who, who wants to work? And so it's very easy. And if your life's out of control, it's hard to keep a job also. And so you get in this situation whereby you're not making it happen. You're not willing to work night and day if you need to, like Paul was. And so what do you do with your time? <coughs> and bad behavior gets reinforced by people making it easy on you. And, and really... Um, becoming enablers 
of bad behavior. And, you know, I think if I just quit working today, I could probably get people to feed me for quite a while. Especially if I, you know, went and preached and I told them, you know, that God called me to do this and to be a vagabond and whatever. And, I, you know, I'm sure by the time I wore out my welcome with everyone I know, I'd eat pretty well for quite a while. But that's not healthy for anyone. Now you might go, but wait a minute, I'm out of work right now. What am I supposed to do? Well, you have from Paul's example, you better find something to do. You, you need to get yourself plugged in. Offer to help somewhere, volunteer. Go out and just tell people about the Lord or you know, find a way to work by collecting bottles or whatever that you need to do to at least live on a schedule, to at least put your life in a, in a situation whereby there's some order to it. Because an orderly life always is going to result in a more fruitful life. When you know, Jesus talked about a branch that doesn't bear fruit in John's gospel, he prunes it that it'll bear more fruit. And that's the way you take care of fruit. A fruit tree is by trimming it back and then it grows more in the direction that it's supposed to grow. Sometimes God takes us through those times of pruning, and we should see that as being, boy, that's a time when I'm really going to get myself together. If you're going through a time of unemployment, it's, it would be wise to form really good habits while you're going through that time. Now, part of that would be getting up early, spending time with the Lord before you do anything else, and then acting like your job is finding work. Not just like shoot out a resume every few days or whatever and wait to hear back, but saying my job right now is to keep myself busy. Now, that might sound heartless or um, cruel or whatever, but that that was Paul's perspective, is that an orderly life is really important because an orderly life is an efficient life An orderly life is a fruitful life, and an orderly life is a life that will keep you from worthless behavior, that'll stop you from being a busybody. And most of us, if we have enough time on our hands, we'll become busybodies. We'll start telling other people what to do. I I remember a guy I knew years ago who, most of the time I knew him, he was unemployed. And I could never figure out why in some ways, because he was a pretty competent guy. And when he had a job, it was a good job. But um, he was in a situation whereby somebody was kind of supporting him and everything. But that guy had more advice than anybody I've ever known. And I, you know, in 30 years, I saw him work probably a total of four years of that time. Now, that's great work if you can get it. I'm not totally knocking it. But the point is he was constantly wanting to know what was going on, sticking his nose into other people's stuff and, and critical of everyone. And he, you know, it, and he really, I don't know how much of an effort he was putting out to really get his life together. Um, but for any of us, thank God if you have two jobs, if you have one job, if you're between jobs, if you're retired, whatever it is, just remember that an organized life is important. A life that is put together because it's not it's not that you have to just be obsessed with organization but it's that you ought to want to be fruitful you ought to want to get the most out of your life and get the most out of the gospel that you can and do as much for the lord as you can you ought to want to have as much financial ability to do things you know in ministry or to help people out who who really need help and things like that And that doesn't happen if you just live by the seat of your pants. That happens because you prepare yourself and you live an ordered and structured life. And Paul said, the ones who don't, they just cause trouble. And so he kind of comes full circle on that. They're busybodies. Verse 12. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness, and eat their own bread. He said, you know, just, they, you need to let them know. Shut up, get to work, 
and take care of your own stuff. Deal with, you know, there was a, I forget what song it was, but, but they said, um, oh yeah, it even has a bad word in it. You, you can't even run your own life, and so I'll say, I'm, I'm sure you're not going to run mine. And that's kind of what he's saying. Like, don't go telling other people um, what they're supposed to do. If, you're kind, if you don't have it together, get your own act together. You know, nobody needs your help enough that you should take away from that which is your business to do. And so, and, and I love this. Then he says, but as for you, brethren, don't grow weary in doing good. The same thing for all of you. If you are faithful or if you're not, if you're not, start getting faithful. If you are, then be satisfied with you doing what you can do. Don't get tired. Don't look and go, man, I think you get better health benefits if you're unemployed than you do if you're working. That's just not, you know, you don't worry about that. You take care of your business. You do what you're supposed to do. And he says, and exhort the others. But verse 14, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. So it's time sometimes to call attention to a person who is a busybody, a person who is creating trouble, being critical, not working, all those sorts of things. A person who's out of order. In the New Testament, they would just call them out for it. Today, um, you know, you'd just be sued all the time if you did that. And I've seen it happen enough times that, you know, it's too bad that people, you know, there are some people who are obviously this way and no one wants to say anything to them or note them. And everybody's thinking that if we, if we just, uh, you know, act like nothing's wrong, that somehow they're going to change. But people don't change like that. And he said, sometimes you just have to say, look, this person is this way and therefore we need to avoid them. We need to not hang around them. Now, we saw an extreme example of this in 1 Corinthians 5 where there's a guy who's living in, a, in an incestuous relationship and the church was like all proud because they were so loving to him. Oh, we love it. A guy like this feels comfortable in our church and praise the Lord. And he goes, no, I mean, this guy, you need to get him out of there. You can't put him in there and act like something good is happening because you do this. Um, apparently, in this case, it was really severe. Everybody knew about it. The guy had been around forever. It wasn't like a brand new Christian coming in. But here, he's just going, sometimes you just have to call it. And as it is, sometimes you just have to say, this is what it is. And um, don't keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. There's probably two sides to that. Two reasons why you shouldn't keep company with someone who's out of order. <clears throat> and the one that he mentions here is, you know, the only language that some people will understand is if you come and tell them, I can't be around you anymore because of what you're doing. But the other aspect of that is people rub off on us. And we have to be really careful. And a part of an ordered life, really, is choosing the kinds of people who influence you, the, the kinds of people that you hang out with. And you've hated hearing that ever since you were a kid, and your parents told you you're hanging out with the wrong crowd. And I hear you know parents saying that about their kids all the time. Well, he's a good kid, but he just got in with the wrong crowd. And I always say, your kid is the wrong crowd. People hang out with people who are like them. And, and so if they won't at some point decide to do better, then that's the way their life is going to go. They're going to end up either with friends that get them in trouble or with no friends at all. Well, a part of the structured life that Paul's talking about here would be a responsible life whereby you don't waste your time in relationships that bring you down. You have a race to run. You have a mission to accomplish. And so he says, you know, if they don't, if they don't listen to this, um, don't keep company with them. Yet, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You don't turn on a person. 
you don't, instead of, you know, he says to don't keep company with them. So avoid them, yes, but go after them, no. They're still, they can still be your brother, and yet they may need to be corrected for the behavior that they're involved in that's dragging them down, that's ruining things for them. And so he says, don't, don't go against them, don't become their enemy, admonish or, or you know, reprove them as a brother. Now, may the God of peace, the Lord of peace himself, give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Peace is God's normal expectation for our lives. And the reason why Paul talks about it so much and why Jesus talked about it so much is it's so easy for us to lose our peace. It's so easy for little things even to rattle us. Somebody cutting you off in traffic, somebody, um, you know, just um, who you don't even know looking at you funny and it's like, I'm upset about this or little things that happen in a family or whatever. And if we lose our peace, we lose our joy, we lose our love, the fruit of the Spirit is just down the drain. And so he reminds us God is the Lord of peace. And may he give you all peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Um, in every way, no matter what happens, no matter what confronts you, no matter what the circumstances are, what we have to do is find a way to find peace in the middle of whatever circumstance we're in, to be able to be at peace even in the middle of a storm that's brewing all around us. And the only way to do that is for God to give that to us. You can't just go, okay, be peaceful, and your veins are popping out, and you're breathing harder, and you're like, peace, peace, and yeah, I want a piece of him. You know, but no, it's the Lord of peace, and in every situation, he wants us to learn how to have peace. Paul talked about how he learned in every circumstance to be content there in Philippians 4, and how often we miss the point that God brings certain things into our lives in order for us to learn peace in a different situation. Sometimes he'll take something away from you that you were leaning on too heavily or you were too attached to it. And we feel like, oh, this is a catastrophe that's happened. Well, no, actually, God's just moved the classroom into a different arena. He's putting you into a different situation. When we get into the book of James on Sundays, you're going to see this is such a recurring theme in the book of James, that it's only when you go through difficulties that you really have an opportunity to show what you're made of, because difficulties make you want to be difficult. Attacks make you want to be combative. But he's saying, God is a God of peace. Don't forget that. He is loving and patient, as he says earlier. And so I pray that in every way, always, the Lord of peace would give you that peace. So how do you get it? You just have to spend time with him and ask him for it. Sometimes you have to work through situations until you finally come to a resolution in your own head and realize, okay, God still knows what he's doing. God's still on the throne. He's still in control. The Lord be with you all, and he is. And then he closes it off by saying, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. When Paul wrote letters, probably because of his bad eyes, but perhaps he was also shaky at this point because when you get stoned repeatedly, it does that to you. Um, so he typically used what's called an emanuensis. He would dictate the letter and they would write the letter. And then this is one of three or four times when he says, I just took the pen from the emanuensis and I'm writing this myself. 
in Galatians, I think it was, where he said, look at I'm writing with really big letters because that's all I can see. Um, here, he says, you'll recognize, people would write letters and claim they were from Paul, but he goes, you know my handwriting, check it out, I'm writing this and closing it off with that greeting that's so common with him. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. And what a, an appropriate closing to a, an epistle that was probably difficult for Paul to write because he was talking about difficult things. He was facing difficult circumstances. He had been hurt by difficult people. And he was hearing disappointing things now about what was going on within the church. And yet, as always, Paul kept his focus on we have a, a race to run. We have a message to carry. We have work to do. And we need to get to work. And we need to make sure that our lives are exemplary. That people look at our lives and they make sense. That they don't look at us and see us out of order. But they see us as, as being on top of things. Because, because God is a God of order. And, and the, the, the final fruit of the Spirit is self-control. When you look through this <coughs> book, you can see almost all of the fruits of the Spirit that he talks about here, and it's really what it's all about, is let your teaching, let your understanding of the Word of God cause you to live a life that makes the Word of God look good, that causes God to be glorified by how you live out that which God is working in. And that is not something that you can just do it. None of these things are commands that you can just go, well, just obey it. These are things that we have to ask God to help us if there's any area of our life whereby we're not patient, we're not loving, we're not with a strong handle of, of discipline on our lives, we're not faithful, dependable. We, whenever we see those things always from God, the reminder would be, well, ask. Ask God to do that. Expect God to do that. Yes, if you're asking God to do something, you should be obedient and try to do what you know to do as well. But the bottom line always, ultimately, is the Spirit of God needs to do a work in our lives, each of us, to make us more who He wants us to be. And then when we can look at our lives and see, I'm making some progress. I felt like blowing my stack, but I didn't. I felt like getting even, but I didn't. I, I, I felt like, you know, just being a bum, but every day I just get up and I do what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, when we do that, he'll be with us to help us. It takes faithfulness and obedience and a work of the Spirit. And that's a powerful combination, certainly, for all of us. Um, this is a first. I actually finished early. <laughs> so I could go back through the chapter again. Uh, no, I won't do that. I do want to remind you that starting this coming week are our new home fellowships. And I'm really excited about, I'm hearing about some of the groups are filling up and things like that. So um, nothing makes me happier than to hear there's waiting lists with, on some groups. Um, but I want everyone to be able to be in a group if they if they want to and so be keeping that in prayer kenny will be in the back with a, at the table with sheets if you don't have a sheet with the uh, email addresses or phone numbers of the people who are leading the groups and if you have any questions he can he can give you more info on that but we're really excited to see what god is going to do and as i've been studying through the book of james i'm just boy does it for one thing, it brings back some amazing memories because Pastor Romaine at Calvary Costa Mesa, who was, uh, on one hand, one of the most enraging people. He could just frustrate you to no end, and yet you couldn't help but love the guy. But his favorite book was the book of James. And on his little Thursday morning Bible studies, he'd teach through the book of James for about three years, and then he'd usually start it up again. <laughs> It's just, and I can't read the book without 
missing him and without thinking about what a faithful guy he was. Um, he failed in a whole bunch of ways often, and he, but he'd be the first to admit it. And he was, a, he was the most honest man I think I've ever known. And uh, so I'm loving going through the book. It's just James is just, he gets to the point. He talks about how to deal with all kinds of things that come into our lives. And I think that as you get together with other people and talk about how it connects to your life, you're going to be amazed at what God can do in, in all of our lives as we just minister to each other and do what the church is supposed to do. So just want to encourage you to plug into one of those groups and, and to do that. And again, in 11 weeks, Lord willing, I'll be back here and probably pick up with the study through Luke or Acts. We have, in going through the Bible, we've covered all the Gospels except Luke. We haven't covered Acts yet because I wanted to hold Luke and Acts and do them together because they're both written by Luke and one more time through the Gospels and, and then we'll go right through the book of Acts. And then we have First and Second Peter, First and Second and Third John, Jude, Revelation, yeah, Titus. No, we did just did Titus. Philemon. <laughs> That's it. So we're looking at, you know, probably another year or so. We will have, in eight or nine years, made it all the way through the entire Bible. So I'm looking forward to closing the book of Revelation and being able to say, you know, that I haven't failed to teach you the whole counsel of God. And then we'll start all over in Genesis and do it again. So um, may God bless you. And um, let's pray. Lord, thanks. Your word is so faithful. You are so faithful. And you are always there for us. Supporting us, strengthening us, holding us up. No matter how much we beat ourselves up, no matter how much others beat us up, there you are, turning it into good, reminding us of your faithfulness. Thank you for that. And Lord, help us to get on top of our lives. Help us to get it together. Some of us, it's just been a long time for us to not start living the life that you've called us to live. So, Lord, help us to work hard, to trust you, and to do our best to represent you well. In Jesus' name.